I was thinking about today, and, and, and looking at chapters 13 through 17 of John's Gospel, it's really interesting because it begs the question for me, have you ever wanted just to sit at the feet of Jesus? Even for a few minutes, have you ever just wanted to sit at his feet and listen to him share some words with you that would relate to your life? Well, we, we have a chance to do that now because chapters 13 through 17 in John's Gospel, just a lot of Jesus sharing his words to his disciples in the last hours that he had with them before he was taken away. This is the most important information that he wants to convey to his disciples. Now, we can approach it in a couple different ways. We, we could plumb the depths of the profound theological mysteries that are embedded and entwined in this stuff, the Trinity and the dual nature of Christ and all kinds of great things. Or we could receive these words as they were intended to be received. The disciples were deeply troubled. We are troubled and we live in troubling times. As it was for them, so too it is for us. And so today, let's just join with the disciples and sit before his, his feet and see if he has a word for us today. I'll be looking at John chapter 14, verses 1 through 23, but I'm going to choose to focus in on one specific topic. So there's a whole section of Scripture on the Holy Spirit, which we'll put off for another week or so. Because today I just want to look at how Jesus is the one who brings us to the Father. And in the weeks ahead, we'll see about how Jesus is also the one who brings the Father to us. And as always, before we dive into the text, I, I want to give us a, a context of what was going on so that we can, we can feel a little bit of what was going on back then when the disciples were listening to Jesus. I mean, think about it. Everybody knew at the time that these were dangerous times for Jesus and his disciples. Uh, prior to Lazarus being raised from the dead, there was a group of individuals that wanted to kill Jesus, get him out of the way. And after Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus' blossoming popularity caused others to say, this guy needs to die. And so the leaders got together to solidify their intent. They were concerned that Jesus would use his rising influence to lead a revolt against the Roman army, and the Romans would then rise up and crush their nation. So they concluded that it's better for one man, Jesus, better for one man to die so that the entire nation could survive. They got the word out that anytime, anytime Jesus came into town, they were to be alerted as to where he was so they could come and arrest him. And as Passover was drawing near, the crowds were swelling in size, and people were all wondering, I mean, think about it, they're, they're talking, where is he? Hasn't he come yet? Isn't he going to come to this festival at all? Well, he did come. He arrived in Bethany. He was anointed with very expensive perfume in preparation for his burial. And then he entered the city in a triumphant way, on the back of a donkey with people waving palm branches and shouting that they believed that he was the true king of Israel. That led into five days of, of debate and, and teaching in the temple courts, which brings us to his final night with his disciples. As they went to the upper room, Jesus entered and he, he washed their feet. He told them that one of them was going to betray him. He hosted the Seder meal and intertwined in that meal, he instituted the sacrament of communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist. And then he said these words, Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. 
Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord, he asked. I am ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? Oh, I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel the growing sadness? Do you feel the discomfort? Can you hear the disciples shifting in their seats? So they wonder what's taking place right now and, and what's going to happen? I mean, it's almost like Jesus is a father who's gathered his children around his deathbed so he could give him, them his last words. And in my own mind's eye, I, I hear a very quiet room, so quiet that you can hear the flames crackling in the little oil lanterns on the walls. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. They knew that Jesus was about to leave them. And from their perspective, nothing could be worse, right, than the departure of their teacher. They just spent three years with him. They've invested everything into him. They, they've watched his love and grace and power and truth come out of him. If he goes to a place where they can't follow, what does that mean for the hope they have? What does that mean for their future? And they all understood that the heart was something that was understood to be the, the, uh, the seat of one's will and one's emotion. And they believed that God's truth could, truth could change the way a person felt, could change the emotion that you felt at a particular time. Psalm 42 talks about this. When the psalmist speaks of himself, he says, he says Why are you so upset within me, O my soul? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God. Jesus and his disciples believed that God's truth carried a greater weight than their current circumstances. So Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Yes, you have heard and you will see some many troubling things ahead. But there's a reason you can choose peace. There's a reason you don't have to be afraid. Because my absence will not be permanent. I leave for a reason. And when I come back, no one will be able to separate us. Now, to believe in God is to trust in God. I mean, it's a personal trust in someone that you know that he's going to fulfill the promises that he gave. And Jesus said, I know you trust in God, and that's good, but I want you also to do this. I want you to trust in me. I mean, you think about that. He's equating trusting in Jesus with trusting in God. If that's not true, it's blasphemy of the highest order. And if it is true, and it's a truth we need to embrace. Put your trust in Christ. He will fulfill what he's promised to you. You know, there, there, there's a lot of speculation as to what exactly is the Father's house that Jesus was talking about. I can tell you something that it's not, okay? It's not multiple opulent mansions in heaven somewhere. You know, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. That's a mistranslation that comes to us from the, the Latin Vulgate so many centuries ago. 
Some think it might be the temple. It might be the temple. That's the Father's house, right? But I'm thinking Jesus has something a little more familial in mind. See, Jesus had just spoken these words right after the communion meal where they talked about loving one another and they talked about the fidelity that they would have with each other. And it was in that time that, that they committed a, a, a new, they, they, they cut a covenant, if you will, using a cup of wine that represented Christ's blood. This was a familiar covenant because a groom would go to his prospective bride and propose a marriage, hand her a cup of wine, and if she took the cup and she drank from that cup, she was accepting his proposal of marriage. The disciples knew this. The disciples also knew that uh, John the baptizer and Jesus himself had likened Jesus to a bridegroom, a groom who was coming to take his bride. And they know that the Old Testament has a word picture that God is married to Israel, that Israel is God's bride. They were aware of all these things. And they knew that when a groom proposed to the bride, he would go and he would propose to the bride in the bride's hometown. And then after the bride accepted, he would return to his father's house where he would build an addition onto that house. The addition was where he and his bride would live. And then when the addition was finished, he would go back to retrieve his bride to take her to be with him that they could be together in the father's house. And the father's house would have a number of additions on it. There was always space for more in the father's household. So the main point here is that Jesus is not going to abandon them, that there's space in the father's household, and he's going to come back, and no one can take them away from each other. As the son of the father, Jesus establishes his followers as members of the father's household and makes the Father's house accessible for them as a residence. He's leaving now to get things ready for them to come. So he says, you can choose not to be troubled, because no matter what the circumstances might suggest, no one can take your position away. And even though I'm gone, I will be back for you. Your place is secure. I think it's interesting that... Um, Jesus promised that he was going to set a place for his disciples, and the leaders were concerned that Rome would steal their place from them. But there's no such concern for Christ's disciples. Their place is secure. And the same is true for us. I mean, it could be anything, couldn't it? It could be an invading army that comes in and bombards our city and takes everything from us. It could be uh, a large tornado that just sweeps everything clean. It could be a pandemic that comes in and a horrible disease that comes in and ravages our body and sends us to the hospital and ICU and to rehab, ripping us from our health and ripping us from our financial resources. It could be a nationwide catastrophic financial failure. Who knows what it could be? It could be anything that steals everything from us except our place, our position in the Father's household. Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And he continued in verse 4, and you know the way to the place I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We, we have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the only truth that reveals what we can't learn on our own. 
And his is the only life, the true life that cannot be snuffed out. These three words are so intertwined. We see them all over the place. Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Psalm 16, you have made known, there's a teaching, a revelation of something we didn't know. You have made known to me the path or the way of life. Jesus is not a way and a truth and a life. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only truth that is certain. He's the only life that is secure. And as Peter said to Jewish leaders in Acts 4, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, Jesus the Christ. Now, in our day and age, that's kind of a hard teaching because he's saying there's no other way to be able to do that. Now, either Jesus' claim is true or Jesus' claim is false and he's lying or someone has put words in Jesus' mouth that he never intended to say, you know, centuries later, decades later, whatever. But that last option doesn't really hold water. It doesn't have any historical grounding and it doesn't meet with uh, scriptural testimony at all. So it's really, that's kind of a skirting of the issue. Either Jesus said it and he meant it and it's true or he said it and he was lying. And while this claim sounds exclusive, which makes it hard for us, it's technically not exclusive. It doesn't fit the, that definition. Because to be exclusive, Jesus would need to exclude or shut out some people from ever having access to this. But he doesn't. His offer is open to all. There's no preconditions. There's no standards that have to be met. There's no journeys that you need to take. There's no sacrifice that you need to make. It's open to anybody. All it requires is for a person to believe that Jesus has a better understanding of the spiritual realm and a better understanding of God's design than we do. To believe that he is from above, that we are from below, that he is speaking from what he has seen, that he has been part of it from the very beginning. And he backs up his words by his actions and all the miracles he did and the way that he showed himself, proved himself to be who he is, especially by his own resurrection from the dead. While Jesus is human, He's also divine. And so he can be trusted because he is God. Let's go back to the text. Verse 7. Jesus says, If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. So Jesus tells us that those who have seen him have seen the Father. We could look at that, that statement in a couple different ways. He could also be saying, Jesus' presence and God's presence are the same thing. That's what the scriptures teach. And Jesus' glory and God's glory are the same thing. Now Moses was given limited vision of God's glory, and Isaiah was given a brief moment to be able to see the Lord high and lifted up on his, on his, on his throne. And later on in Isaiah chapter 40, God through his prophet tells us that in the day of the Messiah, God's glory will be revealed and all humankind will see it. 
The disciples and all who follow Christ have given them the opportunity to experience something that many, many others have longed to know. And that is a personal encounter with Almighty God. Jesus and the Father are in perfect union. Jesus spoke the Father's words. He did the Father's works because he and the Father are one. Now, we all know that, right? I mean, as Christians, that's part of our standard theology. But the next thing is something we may not think about too often. Verse 12. I tell you the truth. And by the way, this is Jesus saying, Amen, Amen. Amen, Amen. I tell you the truth. Listen up. This is so important, he says. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. We will do the same work, even greater work than Jesus because he goes to the Father and sends the Spirit. That's in the weeks ahead. When we ask in his name, he acts. Now, of course, we think about his name. It's more than just in Jesus' name, amen, right? There's a lot going on here. To ask in his name is to be his authorized representative, that we are so unified with his purpose that his words are our words and his actions are our actions. I think the Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are his authorized representatives. As if God were making his appeal through us, as if God were speaking his words through us, we are Christ's ambassadors, authorized representatives, doing his work, speaking God's word, imploring you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are here on behalf of him, speaking and doing what he would say and do as well. Jesus did the Father's work and spoke the Father's words. We are to do the Father's work and speak the Father's words. And it doesn't end here. I want to look at verse 23 as we wrap up. Jesus said, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. There's a lot of stuff here that I'll cover, um, try to cover at Facebook Live on Wednesday. <laughs> um, what I want to focus on in this is his statement about God making his home in us. Because with that, we cycle all the way around to where we began. Don't let your heart be troubled. You trust in God, that is good. Trust also in Jesus. For only by your trust in him do you become part of God's household and so be in God's presence forever, along with his family. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus spoke the Father's words. Jesus did the Father's works. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. And in a similar way, not exactly the same way, but in a similar way, Jesus and his disciples are one. They are unified so that his disciples do Jesus' words and they do his actions as well. And when we speak his words and do his work, we find ourselves obeying Jesus. But our obedience is not this willful kind of obedience. I will do this. I must ratchet myself down and make my will compel, you know, com comply to God. It's not the kind of willful obedience that causes us to say, I might screw up. I'm going to do bad. Oh, I didn't please him today. Oh, no. It's the kind of willing surrender that is done when we recognize God's love for us. And in that willing surrender, we learn how to obey with a joy that comes right from the heart. And somewhere in the midst of it all, we recognize that we don't have to wait 
to move into God's household somewhere down the road. Because God, (laughs) Father and Son, have already moved into us. And no one can take that away. So don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Jesus. For he is the only one who can bring us to the Father. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we don't have to guess what you are like, for you have revealed your loving character to us in more than just words, that's for sure. And we don't have to guess if we have done enough to please you or to retain our place in your household. For based on the perfect work of your Son, our relationship and standing with you is secure. Jesus, you've done the work, and now you are doing the work through us. You are preparing a place for us and are preparing a place in us. Help us respond to your love with love as we surrender to your way and your truth and your life. You know, Lord, when we look back over the course of our lives, we see your faithfulness. When we look forward, we can't tell what is coming, but we see what's already there. It's your faithfulness. So with all we have, with all we are, we surrender to your love and we sing of your goodness again.